My goodness, it's good to be back. Missed you folks. We spent uh, six weeks uh, trailering our way through parts of uh, Wyoming and Montana and Idaho and Washington and uh, Oregon. Uh, took some long walks, saw a lot of beautiful country, read a lot of books, caught a few fish, and uh, just in general had a great time. But it sure is good to be back. I, I have truly missed you. I was just telling Chris, this is the first time in almost two months that I have sung with anybody other than myself. <laughs> I don't sing out loud around Carolyn. It's too traumatic for him. I came back uh, this Monday to uh, a building just filled from wall to wall with little children. We just uh, completed our vacation Bible school, as many of you know, and it was just a great time. I asked my uh, little six-year-old granddaughter, Melanie, what she thought about vacation Bible school, and she did this little dance, and she said, it was great, she said. So I just want to, there were about 150 adults that uh, served in various capacities in vacation Bible school. That was an enormous task, recruiting and training those people, and just want to express my appreciation to Lina Casey and, and uh, Kathy Beitman and all the other people that were involved. Just how, how many of you served in vacation Bible school? Just put your hand up. Oh, that's great. I think most of them are probably sleeping in this morning, uh, trying to recoup. But we just we want to thank you for your hard work. Well, let's see. I, I'm supposed to preach. Uh, James 4, would you turn to the fourth chapter of the book of James? I have this uh, kind of love-hate ambivalent relationship with James. Uh, James is sort of like my uh, Jeep Wagoneer. Some days I love it, some days I hate it. Uh, James has this uncanny way of of meddling. Uh, There's some uh, remarkable insights into life and what makes life work, but very often he works us over. Uh, he deals with all of those little hypocrisies that we we try to get away with. We think they're not too important, but they're really the things that erode away our spiritual vitality, and, and James just will not let us get away with it. Uh, as a friend of mine used to put it, using an old World War II metaphor, James does not strafe the deck, he drops the bomb right down the funnel. He uh, has a way of dealing with, uh, with root issues and hitting us where it, where it really counts. Um, the particular chapter that I want to talk about this morning, James 4, has to do with conflict. And one of the reasons I want to talk about this chapter is that I've been reading some books on my vacation on conflict resolution, some by secular authors, some by Christian authors, and the thing that struck me is that none of them really touch the heart of the issue the way James does. And uh, in pondering this chapter again, I thought I would share with you some of the insights that James gives us on dealing with conflict. Conflict is one of those inevitabilities in life, uh, sort of like war and taxes and death. Um, We see it on a national scale in the Middle East today in the tragic situation in Iraq. We see it in Liberia. We see it in South Africa. Uh, In the continuing uh, Palestinian problem, there just seems to be be no resolution of these very difficult 
uh, issues of conflict around the world. And perhaps more important for you, though certainly the situation in the Middle East is uh, strategic and very important, the, the question that's probably on your mind is, how do I deal with conflict in my own life? Nations may rage, but uh, so do couples, and so do siblings, and so do neighbors. And uh, we want to learn how to deal effectively with conflict in our own lives. And there is a way. Now, let me begin reading the, the first four verses of chapter 4, James 4. If you have trouble finding James, it's right after Hebrews, right before Peter. What causes fights and quarrels among you? That's the question, isn't it? That's a good question. That's the answer to which most people do not have an answer. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I, I suppose all of us from time to time have asked ourselves that question, what causes me to get, um, to, to, to get into conflict with my children, to be at odds with, with Carolyn? What, what, are, what are the root causes, the sources of these difficulties that, that we run into from time to time, and how can we handle them? Well, there are a lot of different options. One is that one person can always give up. And in some marriages, that's what happens. One person becomes the pushover. They have the round heels. But uh, that's not a satisfactory solution. It's not at all healthy. And it's not at all Christian. Sometimes we confuse Christian ideas of submission and humility with uh, just giving in all the time. But as James himself puts it, puts it in this book, the wisdom that's from above is first pure and then peaceable. We do not as Christians operate on the basis of, of peace at all costs, never. Sometimes uh, we have to disrupt peace. We have to create some disharmony because we take a strong stand on the basis of truth. It's inevitable. Furthermore, uh, people who are pushovers after a while get resentful and bitter. They may justify it under the name of Christian submission, but uh, it works on us. It really does, and we get real unhappy. And that's very often why people get depressed, is because way down deep inside they're very resentful over the things that they've given up. Outwardly, they're, they're very compliant, but inwardly they're, they're not at all uh, uh, responsive, like a little girl in the kindergarten class that I heard about who was told to sit down, and she didn't want to sit down, but she sat down and she said to herself, muttered under her breath, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. And very often that, that's our, our reaction. And those who push are not satisfied either. It's always a kind of wasting victory if you're the one who's, uh, who's, who's always getting your way. It's very, you feel very empty afterward. So that's not a satisfactory option. Another way to deal with conflict is simply to dig in and take a position and defend it and argue for it. 
It's like putting two people in a room and telling them to duke it out until the best man or woman wins. And sometimes just by sheer force of personality or will or or mind, you can overwhelm the other person and get your way, but that's not satisfactory either. Some people simply pull rank. There are some men who misunderstand the biblical teaching on headship, who throw their weight around and insist on their way and label that, uh, that male leadership in the home, but it's more domination than anything else. Or you can try James' peaceable way. James takes us right to the root of the problem. He says the thing that causes conflict is what he describes as desires that battle within you. Now that word desire is a a very interesting term. It's the word from which we get our word hedonism. A hedonist is someone who believes that that fun and pleasure is the ultimate good. <clears throat> I, whenever I go to Sun Valley, uh, that's always the thought that goes through my head. You know, this is a, by and large a collection of people that are very hedonistic in their outlook. They, they're living for pleasure, to ski and to bike and to jog and to tan and all the things that, that, that give pleasure to people over there. But, you know, we have it over here, too, and and we, we all, to some extent, are out for pleasure. And really, the term that Paul or James uses here is a, new, is a morally neutral term. It simply means uh, personal interest, self-interest. And the pursuit of self-interest in and of itself is not necessarily bad. We're, we're put together. We're a, a bundle of needs and wants and desires and longings and aspirations and cravings and dreams. And, 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 and very often those are good things. There's nothing wrong with them. The, 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 the word that's used here, the word that James uses, is a word that's used in the Greek translations of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for the taste of manna, for example. Manna tasted good. It was very pleasurable. It was a good thing. It was the bread from God. It was the bread from heaven that supplied their needs. So James is not saying that the pursuit of one's self-interest is necessarily bad. You get hungry and you eat. That's pleasurable. You want to be loved. You want to be accepted. You want to be approved. You want to be cared for. You want to be protected. You want to be esteemed. Those are all legitimate desires and, and interests. And we all hunger for them. But uh, James points out that very often these interests are at odds with one another. He describes these desires as fighting within you. He's not talking about the body of Christ, but within your own body, within your own members. So these strong currents of need and want and desire are actually cross currents. They they very often uh, are at odds with one another. That's why very often we don't know what we want. We think we want something, and it's really something else that we want. And these surging, uh, raging desires and needs, he says, are within, and that's what causes conflict. Why? Well, because very often in our pursuit of pleasure, we run afoul of someone else who is pursuing pleasure. You're looking for a parking spot at the mall. That's a very pleasurable thing, to find a parking spot right close to the door. 
And just as you're about to pull into the parking spot, somebody zips around the corner and they get your spot. See? Well, wars have been started over a lot less than that. Or you want to take a hot shower. But by the time you get to the shower, someone else has, has drained the hot water tank. So what you take is a cold shower. See? Well, that's an invitation to do battle right there. Or uh, we, we just, Brian and, and uh, Jill, our son and daughter-in-law, one of our sons, was here just this past week, and we have a new little granddaughter. She's nine months. And uh, I noticed that Brian and Jill were looking a little haggard. They had bags under their eyes. And I understood why after the first night. They wanted to sleep. That was very pleasurable for them. But Sarah wanted to get up and play. That was pleasurable to her. She didn't want to go to sleep until 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, or uh, you, you, you men come home and you've been talking to people all day and you're tired. You have about a foot of tongue hanging out. And you're, you're ready to relax. Sit down and enjoy a little quiet time, a little peace and quiet. Your wife's uh, been talking to a two-year-old all day. She wants to talk. See, and both of you are pursuing pleasure and so you just run head on into each other. And that's what causes conflict. It's now, now, you know, if you if you read the books on conflict resolution, they know this truth. They understand it. In fact, more and more effort is being expended toward learning to deal with the people issue. They understand that when people take positions out here and defend them, that we have to kind of slide under the positions and start asking questions. You know, what, what, what's going on underneath? What do these people really want? What are their desires and urges and longings and needs and aspirations and hungers that underlie the position that they've taken? And uh, that's what we've got to begin to do. You see, uh, Paul says in Philippians 2 that we must not think in terms of our own interests, but we must think in terms of the interests of others. So if you find yourself running afoul of your, your kids or, or your mate or your neighbor, uh, instead of uh, arguing on the level of positions, you know, I, this is the way I, way I uh, this is the stand that I take, and, and I'm not going to be confused with the facts. You know, this is the way it is, and we begin to argue and do battle over our positions, and we need to begin to find out what's going on underneath. What does this person think? What are, what are their interests? What are their concerns? What do they really care about? What are they worried about? Now, this means we've got to learn how to communicate. Oh, that's a, that's a tough assignment. Learning how to talk to one another is, is really hard. You see, what we don't understand is that Babel did more than just, Tower of Babel did more than just confuse our languages so that some of us speak English and some speak French and some speak German. It confused the whole communication process so that when we sit down to talk, we very literally babble at one another and a lot of the energy is lost and we don't communicate clearly and we don't understand what's going on. I heard a story on my vacation about a couple that uh, wanted to get a divorce, so they went to a divorce lawyer and, and he, uh, he said to them, uh, well, he said to her, do you have any grounds? And she said, yes, we have about an acre and a half. And uh, he said to the man, does she have a grudge? And she interrupted before he could speak. She said, no, we have a carport. <laughs> and uh, uh, so the, the attorney said to her, well, 
does he beat you up? And she said, no, I usually get up before he does. <laughs> and he said, well, why, why do you want a divorce? And she said, well, I don't know. We just have a hard time communicating. <clears throat> and uh, commu- communication is like that. It's tough. It just takes time. You have to sit down and, and you, have, you have to talk things out. You have to listen real well. Real hard to listen because most, I know my heart, usually when the other person's talking, I'm thinking of the answer. Or I'm trying to talk them out of their feelings instead of recognizing that, that the way you feel is the way you feel. Can't do anything about that for the time being. You just have to listen and listen carefully and ask questions and try to clarify and feedback what the other person is saying and, and find out what, what's really, really going on. Uh, one of the things that I'm learning, and, and I have to tell you, I, I'm, I'm real, I'm not very good at it yet, but I'm trying to learn, is not to send any you messages. Not, not talk about what you did and what you said and how you made me feel. As a matter of fact, I'm trying to expunge that pronoun from my vocabulary and rather just talk, send I messages the way I feel and, and what's happening to me, see, rather than blame and criticize and Get on the other, other person's case. And, uh, and then to listen real well to what the other person is saying and ask the right kind of questions and draw them out until, until I can understand what's really going on down deep inside. And once you touch those interests, then you can begin to invent options. You can start thinking about ways in which those interests can be met for one another. Now, this is about a, a, as far as the, the secular books can take us. They, they, I've gotten a lot of help, really, from, from looking at this material. But what strikes me is that they have no answer for those times when you run into an impasse, when the other person won't, won't dance, when they won't negotiate, when their mind is made up and you can't confuse them with the facts. You know, And, and those times just happen. They happen to all of us. Sometimes we do it. We stonewall or we threaten to walk out or we do walk out or you know, we, we respond in inappropriate ways. We start blaming and criticizing and trying to fix responsibility rather than getting down under the surface and finding out what people are thinking. What do you do in a case like that? Those are the really tough times when the person will not negotiate. Well, James tells us. And as I said, I've never seen this anywhere else. Except in James' book. And the reason the, the, uh, uh, the secular authors don't know this is because they don't know God, by and large. And they don't know that God gives a greater grace, as James says. Uh, James tells us in another place that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He's the father of lights, source of light and truth, in whom there is no darkness Neither shadow of turning. Never anything but truth and love and goodness and grace. And he, he wants to give. And you see, they don't know that. They don't understand that he gives this greater gift. So James tells us what to do. What do you do when negotiations break down and you reach one of these awful impasses? When your needs are not being met, when your interests are being frustrated and and thwarted. See, instead of, as, as James puts, instead of fighting and arguing and even killing, see, this, that's why people kill, generally. They, they tell us 
that most killings are not premeditated. They're crimes of passion, deeply regretted afterward. People just lose it, and they lash out and, and kill the other person. I mean, it can go that far. Frustration and anger can drive you that far. It may have driven you to, to hit your spouse or to strike your children and sit them on the seat of the britches in, in some other inappropriate place and uh, cause you to respond in, 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 in ungodly ways. And so what, what do we do in a case like that? How do we deal with those strong currents and those needs and interests? Well, James tells us, listen to this. Now, you won't believe it at first. You may have to struggle with this, but it's truth. James says, in the latter part of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. Isn't that simple? You do not have because you do not ask God. Do you know God cares? Do you understand that He knows those deep longings? He understands you better than you understand yourself. And you do not have to be frustrated. You can ask God to meet your needs. Now there's one proviso. <laughs> you have to ask according to his will. You see how he puts it? When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So we have to be willing to say, Lord, this is my need. I desperately need the love of my spouse. I desperately need the affection of my children. I, 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 I'm so lonely. I'm hurting so badly. I need someone to minister to my needs. Now I'm going to ask you in your own time and in your own way to meet that need. Just ask him. Just ask him. I think I've told my story before. I got it from my father about the Scotch Presbyterian Church and the, the elderly gentleman who stood in the middle of a prayer meeting and began to pray one of these long theological prayers, O thou God that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, before whom the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And he went on and on and on, and this old Scot behind him dug on his coattails and said, just, just call him Father and ask him for something. And that's what God wants us to do. Just call him Father and ask him. Because he cares. He cares about his children. Longs to meet their needs. So you don't have to lose it. You can ask, but you have to ask the way our Lord asked in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to wait for your timing and let you give it to me in the way that will really meet my needs. And my experience has been that if we really wait upon God, He will meet our needs and satisfy us at a level that no one else can satisfy us. That's the thing that David learned. uh, One of the psalms that I worked on, my vacation was Psalm 63, and he just came to the conclusion that God and God alone was what he needed. That he could live with God and God alone and with nothing else. Now, I want you to notice the way James develops this argument. It is, it is telling. Verse 4. You adulterous people. See, that's why I don't like James. Just, just about the time uh, he begins to uh, comfort me, then he, you, know, you get this uppercut. You adulterers, adulteresses, literally, he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? 
Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us tends toward jealousy? And he gives more grace. That's why the the Scriptures say God opposes the, the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me try to explain James' analogy. Some people, uh, some commentators, appear to take James as a homily of ideas, just a whole bunch of disconnected ideas, somewhat somewhat like the book of Proverbs, but I don't see it that way. James has a typical Semitic mind. He just kind of jumps from one issue, uh, it jumps from one paragraph to the next with 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 one issue in mind, but without any uh, connection. Sometimes you don't see the logical connection. It's not there grammatically. You have to supply it. And here's what he's saying. If we insist upon meeting our needs by ourselves and for ourselves, or if, if we try to get our needs met in some ungodly way, we try to find the love and affection that we're looking for in, in someone or something other than in, in God's legitimate way, we're like a wanton woman. See, God is like a jealous husband. He wants to give. He, he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. He wants to supply and supply and supply. And when we insist upon getting our supply from someone other than God, we're like an adulterous woman. Uh, for example, if Carolyn went next door to our neighbor and, and uh, talked to Leon about her need to buy a dress, uh, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't like that because I want to meet that need. Uh, I, I, I want to fulfill her needs in every way. And God is like that toward us. He wants to meet your needs. And when we start looking for answers in any place other than God, James says we're like a wanton woman. And, and what's more, we're worldly. We've become a friend of the world. And you can't become a friend of the world without being God's enemy. You've put yourself at odds with God. And you say, wait a minute, I'm not worldly. I don't uh, smoke and drink and chew and go with girls that do. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worldly. You know? But uh, as we've seen over and over again, worldliness is not some of these external things that are generally labeled worldly. It's the attitudes of the heart. And this is the way the world goes about getting its needs met. They, they don't look to God for help. They, they look to themselves. They act out of their own resources. And James says that's a very, very serious thing. We've become adulteresses. When we should be coming to God. We say, well, wait a minute. Though I'm not good enough to come to God. I haven't done well this past week. I haven't obeyed him in every, uh, every way that he wants me to obey. So he probably is not interested in helping me. Well, he, he is. He is. He's always ready. His arms are always open. He always wants to sucker us and supply just, just what we need. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I heard a, one of those bad news, good news stories about uh, the man who came into a bank, farmer who came into a bank, and he told the bank executive that he had some bad news and good news. And he said, which do you want first? And the banker said, well, I have the bad news first. The fellow said, well, I can't pay any of my bills this year. can't pay anything on my loans. I uh, can't pay on the mortgage. can't even pay the interest. can't pay for the seed. can't, you know, all that equipment I bought 
Last year I can't pay anything on that. I can't pay a thing. The banker took a breath and said, what, what's, what's the good news? He said, well, I'm going to keep doing business with you. <laughs> and uh, that's the approach we got to take with God. We come to him and say, I don't have anything to offer. and I don't have anything to give. I've very often been at odds with you this last day of the year. But I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing business with you. And the good news is God keeps doing business with us. See, that's what grace is. God's resources given willingly, without any merit on our part. We just simply come and ask. Now, uh, James gives us what I think is a one, two, three list of how to handle these uh, situations. Let's begin reading with verse 7. What happens when you run afoul of someone and you feel your anger beginning to rise? might be good to take a time out. Take a walk around the block and calm yourself down and remind yourself of the truth. But here's the truth. Number one, first submit yourself to God. I've said over and over again, the person that opposes us is not the enemy. That person is just the victim of the enemy. That's all. Uh, We just need to submit to what God is doing. uh, What he's doing in our lives. And we need to see that at least for the time, though, that person has been victimized and, and they're making life difficult for us. Behind it all is God's gracious hand and we can submit to him. And then he says, resist the devil and he will flee for you. Well, who is it that, that makes us want to assert ourselves? Where, where does that spirit come from? Well, it comes from the evil one. He's the author of self-assertion. That's what caused his fall in the beginning. And that's his most seductive way of of bringing us down by making us uh, insist upon our own way, asserting our own own will, trying to run roughshod over people. So we submit to God, we see his hand in all of this, and by so doing we resist resist the devil and his appeal. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. He responds to the weakest cry, the most inept uh, plea for help. All we have to do is, 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 is submit to him and and, and draw close to him, and, and he, he comes close to us. He begins to, to supply the, the need that we have. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your, and your joy to gloom. In other words, folks, this is not a laughing matter. Discord within the body of Christ, discord within families, the divorce of Christian couples is not a laughing matter. This is very, very serious. Uh, One of the marks of God's people is that they love each other. We're we're told that uh, this is the way the world will know that we're distinctive. We love each other. We, we cling to our mates at all costs. We make every effort to try to be reconciled to our children. We do everything we can to try to walk with our, uh, with our in-laws. Uh, churches don't split. You know, I, I, my goodness, I just, I just grieve when I hear, again, of, of churches dividing and subdividing and people going their own way and, and not even caring. 
justifying it, defending it, insisting on their rights, and trying to ground it in some theological principle. You know, 99% of the time it has nothing to do with theology. It's personal conflict. And what James wants us to understand is that this is serious. It's terribly serious. That's why he calls for mourning. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. Grieve and mourn and wail and change your laughter to mourning. Don't laugh this off and your joy to gloom. You cannot take this lightly. This is very, very serious. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I want you to understand that that is an unequivocal promise. If you humble yourself before God, if you see that this present frustration is really the hand of God upon you, and you humble yourself under his hand, he will exalt you. In due time, Peter adds, he quotes the same proverb, and he points out that there's always a time element, uh, there's a delay. He doesn't always uh, respond immediately to our requests. And if we get in a hurry, what we generally do is delay God's answer, like Abraham did with, with Ishmael. We just make things worse. But if we wait for God, listen to this. He will exalt you. Now, either that's true or it's a lie. And if it's a lie, let's just throw the whole book away. If there's one lie here, then let's forget it all. He will exalt you. Now, I don't know how he'll do that. He may change the other person's mind. He may bring them around to your point of view, or maybe you can work something out that's uh, that serves the interests of both people. And But he will satisfy your needs. My God will satisfy, supply your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, do you want an example of that? It's in Philippians 2. Would you turn there with me, please? This is perhaps the best of all illustrations. Philippians 2, verse 4. I quoted this verse earlier this morning. Each of you should look not only to your interests, but also to the interests of others. See, that's, again, we're, we're going down to the root problem. What is it? It's interest, concern. The, the personal factor, the hidden needs and desires of both parties. So he says, don't just think about your own interests, but also the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. See, here's the one who had the right to call down legions of angels in his behalf, but he did not do it. Listen to what he did. Who, being or existing in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. And then to show you how far he, he went in his humbling, he went to the extent of death. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. See, the question is, if I don't assert myself, who will? God will. God will. He'll take care of you. 
And he'll take care of you much better than you can take care of yourself, believe me. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of Father. Let's pray. I would like to lead us, all of us, myself included, in a prayer of contrition. I don't know your heart, but I know mine. And I know how easy it is for me to assert my own desires, want my own interests, look out for myself, myself, and very often do so at the expense of others. James puts it on the line. He says, this is a very serious matter. We should weep. We should mourn. We should wail. We should confess our sin. If we do so, he will forgive us our sin. So I would lead, like to lead us together in a prayer of contrition and humility, and let's ask God for his help. Father, we're so inclined to be self-assertive. Come so naturally. It comes out of that old life that's been rendered inoperative. We realize that we have a new life to lead. We have a new volume to open. We don't have to act any longer out of that that old sinful nature. And yet so often we forget and we go our own way and we demand our own rights and we assert ourselves and we don't ask you. And we are indeed adulterous, wanton, unfaithful, unloyal. Forgive us, Lord. Thank you for taking that guilt upon your cross freeing us not only from the penalty of that sin, but from the shame of it, from the embarrassment that grieves us and replaces it with real joy. Lord, we pray that that we will do whatever we have to do to set right the relationships that we've uh, hindered in the past and that we will go about doing things your way. We ask that you would meet our needs in your own time, and in your own way. Not our will, but yours be done. And we thank you for that exaltation, that that lifting up of the head that is the result, the release of depression and discouragement, that heavy sense of, uh, of guilt and responsibility that weighs us down. Thank you that that's all taken away and we can walk in fellowship with you and and with one another. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.